Up until now, the gospel writer is focused on the person of Jesus Christ, who he is. And now he's going to focus in his gospel on the power of Christ, what he does, his authority. And everything so far in the gospel, including Jesus' conflict with Satan in the wilderness, confirms Jesus as the Messiah. Luke deals with Jesus' person as Messiah, Son of God, Savior of the world. He is the Anointed One. He is the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord has come to preach the gospel. So everything up to this point has been on his person. He is the Messiah by virtue of angelic announcement. He is the Messiah by virtue of virgin birth and virtue of Abrahamic and Davidic descent. He's the Messiah by virtue of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the Messiah by virtue of the proclamation of the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. He is the Messiah by virtue of his defeat of Satan. All of these things confirm it. He is the Messiah because the Father announced him to be the Messiah and because he is the anointed one. As we learned last time, he came to preach the gospel to the poor, to the captives, to the blind, to the downtrodden. And all of that identifies him as the person of the Messiah. Now in Luke chapter 4, we're going to look at his power. And we're going to see his power over all religious teachers. We're going to see his power over demons. We're going to see his power over disease, his power over nature. And all that's going to unfold in the fourth and fifth chapters of Luke's gospel. And the main point of this section in Luke's gospel is that Jesus has power over everyone and everything. So we pick it up in verse 31 of Luke chapter 4. Jesus has left his hometown of Nazareth, where they tried to throw him off a cliff. That was a real welcome there. <laughs> That's really something. But we pick it up in verse 31. And he came to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And, as they, were, and they were amazed with his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out, cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this important passage of Scripture this morning, where we see the demonic and evil forces that are at work in our world, Father, Father, I thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is Lord of lords and King of kings, who is ruler over all, even these demonic forces. Father, as we study this passage, I pray that the Holy Spirit would open up to our hearts and to our minds that we might have an understanding of what is really going on in our world and in the spiritual realm. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So having described a Sabbath day in Nazareth where Jesus was teaching, where he was violently rejected, Luke now describes another Sabbath day, this time in the town of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a small town, a fishing village, on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was about two miles from where the Jordan River flows into the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And when Luke says that Jesus came down to Capernaum, Jesus literally came down. Because Nazareth is 1,200 feet above sea level, and Capernaum is almost 700 feet below sea level. And Capernaum was a prosperous fishing town where Jesus made his home in Galilee. Now, for me, visiting the ancient city of Capernaum was one of the highlights of my trip to the Holy Land. And in Capernaum, we visited the ruins of a second century synagogue. And the second century synagogue was built on the same foundation as the synagogue where Jesus taught. And they've excavated the ruins of a multitude of houses in Capernaum. And as an architect, it was interesting to discover that the average size of a home or house in Capernaum was 200 square feet. The whole house was just 200 square feet, smaller than the average living home or living room in an American home. But what was even more interesting was that the archaeologists have identified what they report to be the home of Simon Peter, the disciple of Jesus. And we knew from, know from Luke chapter 4, verse 38, that Peter lived at Capernaum, lived there with his family, including his mother-in-law, whom Jesus would heal. And they all lived in this 200-square-foot home. How they know it's Peter's house, I, I don't know. But if it's not his home, it would have been exactly like it. And the other interesting thing is that a, a modern church building has been built over Peter's house, and they call it St. Peter's Church. And the, the center of the, the first floor of this church has a glass floor, so you can look down into the ruins of, of Peter's home. And the house is supported in such a way that it seems to hover over Peter's house like, like a spaceship. And you can go under the church, <clears throat> and you can wander around the ruins of the house underneath as well. But, but with all that said, it was an amazing feeling to stand in the synagogue at the exact place where Jesus taught and cast the demon out of a man. Verse 31 of Luke chapter 4 again. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they came down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. The word translated amazed here means to strike with panic. They were struck with shock. They were thunderstruck in their souls. Jesus' teaching produced a powerful punch. It packed a powerful punch. And why did it strike at their souls that way as it did in their hearts? It was because his message, or his word literally, was with authority. As I mentioned last time, the teachers in Jesus' day parroted the teaching of the well-known and honored religious teachers of the day which made their teaching boring. It was joyless, petty, legalistic. It was weightless, and it was often contradictory. But Jesus would just open the scrolls of the Word of God. He would preach God's Word. He would not teach, preach about God's Word, but he would preach the Word of God. 
And when Jesus went forth to war against the forces of evil, he staked everything on the authority of the written word of God. He defeated Satan and his temptations in the desert by quoting God's word. You remember he would respond, For it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And then when he preached in, in Nazareth, the basis of his sermon was Isaiah 61. And his sermon on the mount and the Beatitudes and all of that was an exposition of the Old Testament law. And even after his resurrection, while he was on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, explained to these two disciples, the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. Wouldn't that be amazing to hear Jesus begin with Exodus chapter 1 and teach how everything in the Old Testament points to him. It's about him. It anticipates his coming and what he does and what he did and what he will do. And after Jesus left those two disciples in Emmaus, they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? On account of the teaching of the word of God, their hearts burned. That is the power of the preaching and teaching of God's word. But while Jesus was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, he was interrupted. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed, verse 1, by the spear of an unclean spirit. And he cried out with a loud voice. Now, when Jesus performed his miracles, whether it be healing or casting out demons or calming the sea, he didn't do it just because he could do it or did it to show off or to draw a crowd, or gain a following, or simply because he could do it. You see, everything Jesus did, including his miracles and casting out demons, were visual indications of deeper spiritual realities. In casting out demons, Jesus pulls back a veil on the cosmic forces at work in this world. In other words, if Jesus is going to save sinners, and that's what he came to do, he's going to rip them out of the kingdom of darkness. He's going to have to get them away from Satan. The miracle of casting out demons shows that Jesus has the power and the authority over the kingdoms of darkness that holds sinners in bondage to Satan. For example, I'm going to quote several scripture passages here. You don't need to look to them, but in Adam, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus told the Pharisees that their father is the devil, whose children they are. Jesus says that unregenerate, the unconverted sinners of the world, are children of Satan. Ephesians 2 says that they are literally children of disobedience, that they are sons of disobedience who are under the power of the prince of the air. They're under the control of the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4 says that the God of this world has blinded their minds so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 13 says that all sinners are in the domain of darkness. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then in Acts chapter 26 verse 18, Paul, in giving his testimony, says that he preached the gospel in order to turn people from darkness to light, 
from the dominion of Satan. All sinners are under the dominion of Satan. And this is a frightening and sober reality, but a reality nonetheless. And Jesus pulls back the veil to make spiritual realities here evident. And among other things, salvation means that we are freed from the grip of Satan. And we become children of God, adopted into God's family, so we can walk in the light as he is in the light. So it's no wonder that the first miracle of Jesus that Luke records in his gospel is the casting out of a demon from a man in the synagogue in Capernaum. As important as miracles are in the events of the life of Jesus, they serve that we might see these deeper spiritual realities. And since Jesus' works, Jesus' work represents the powerful arrival of the forces of righteousness into God's world, is it any wonder that Jesus must go in constant hand-to-hand -hand combat with the forces of evil? So the first miracle recorded in the Gospel of Luke is an exorcism. And the major appointment in Jesus' ministry, or the major opponent, those who opposed Jesus in his ministry, the major ones weren't the Pharisees and the priests and the teachers of the law, who even schemed against Jesus to put him to death. His major opponent in his ministry wasn't Rome or the political forces at work. The major opponent in Jesus' ministry consisted of spiritual forces of evil. In fact, in Luke's gospel, demons are mentioned 23 times. When Jesus was walking on the earth, all the power of hell was launched against him. There was no other time in human history when the demonic world was more actively at work and furiously engaged against the kingdom of God than in the first century because the Son of God was walking on the earth. All the power of hell was unleashed against him. All the demons of hell, it would seem, were concentrated on that small sliver of land in Judea and Galilee. <clears throat> now, virtually every miracle that Jesus performed in the New Testament was also performed by the prophets in the Old Testament, like Elisha and Elijah and, and Moses. But what is radically new about the supernatural ministry of Jesus is his ministry of demon exercise. Luke wants us to know that Jesus' power over the demonic world is significant. It's a sign of his own supernatural origin, of his own supernatural authority. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, you don't need to turn to it, he said, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How do you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you? I cast out demons by the finger of God. So if Jesus is going to deliver people from their spiritual poverty, if he's going to deliver them from their spiritual bondage, if he's going to deliver them from their spiritual blindness and their spiritual oppression, if he's going to set the captives free, if he's going to smash down, as 2 Corinthians 10 describes it, the fortifications of the deceiver, if he's going to destroy the fortresses of Satan, the lying ideologies, the false religions, and, and all the rest, if he's going to do that and set the captives free and bring them to salvation, he has to be able to conquer demons. Sinners are in darkness. 
Sinners are under condemnation. They are prisoners of Satan's kingdom. And if they are to be liberated, then the Messiah must have the power to shatter these guardians of that kingdom, the demons, the fallen angels, their ruler, Satan. And in Jesus' encounter with the demon-possessed man in Capernaum, we see that Jesus has that power. Verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. One of Satan's minions had entered the person of one of the synagogue attenders. The man literally had the spirit of an unclean demon in him. You see, all the encounters that Jesus had with demons follow a similar pattern. There's always a protest where the demon complains. This demon cries out at the top of his voice, and the demon literally cries out with a loud voice in verse 34, Ha! What do you have to do with us? This is the cry of a being writhing in terrible torment. This is a being that could not bear the presence of Jesus Christ. It could not help but to cry out. It probably would have preferred to remain quiet and hidden. But in Jesus' presence, it cried out in anguish. Jesus, what are you doing? Let us alone. Don't torment us. What do we have to do with you? Have you come to destroy us? The idea is, have you come to destroy us before the time? You see, demons know that their days are numbered. They are irredeemable. In other words, they cannot be saved. Having sided with Lucifer, that is Satan, in the great rebellion against God, the demons one day will be cast into the eternal lake of fire that burns with brimstone, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. God in his providence established a day when the demons are going to be wiped out and their power completely removed, but that day had not yet come. And this demon knew it. You see, demons have a sound theology. They know who Jesus is. They know what truth is. They know who God is. And James tells us, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The demons' understanding of God and of Jesus is impeccable. The problem is that they don't know, it's not that they don't know the truth, the problem is that they hate the truth. They hate it with every fiber of their being. No one hated Jesus more than these demonic beings. When he appeared, they trembled, they feared, they protested, they resisted, but nothing would quench their fierce hatred of Jesus Christ. The demon said, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. When in the presence of Jesus Christ, nothing recognizes the holy more clearly than the unholy. Nothing more recognizes the intrusion of heaven more than those who inhabit hell. 
So here we find the testimony of the devil to the identity of Jesus Christ. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And this demon interrupted Jesus, his teaching, and now Jesus silenced him. Verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Literally, the text says, Jesus muzzled him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. The demon tried his best to harm the man by throwing him down to the ground, probably wanted to kill him. It's the idea, if I can't have him, Jesus, nobody's going to have him, not even you, Jesus. So there's really another miracle here, a miracle that this man was body slammed to the ground, hard enough to kill him, but he was not harmed. Verse 36. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another. What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about Jesus was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. What is this message? The people recognize the demonic forces have been subdued by Jesus' word. Jesus has both authority and power. And the reader is left pondering the question the crowd has raised. What is this message? Now, chances are most of us will never come face to face with someone who is possessed by a demon. My New Testament professor was from Burma, which is now called Myanmar. And incidentally, be praying for Myanmar because with the the military coup and all the things that are going on in Myanmar these days, a lot of it has to do really with the, the persecution of Christians in Myanmar. And so be in prayer for that. But uh, my New Testament professor was from Burma, Myanmar. And while he lived in Thailand, he and his wife, along with his daughter, took demon-possessed people into their home. And over the course of several weeks and even months sometimes, through prayer and the ministry of the Word of God, these people were delivered from bondage and came to faith in Jesus Christ and were saved. But aside from that kind of ministry, as believers, we are nonetheless in a constant battle. The Christian life is a life of warfare, spiritual warfare. Please turn to that familiar passage in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, where Paul talks about the full armor of God. You see, the most important thing is to know where the battle actually takes place. If we'd lived in Capernaum at the time of Jesus, when he taught in the synagogue, we would have said that the battle between Jesus and the demon took place in the synagogue. Or the battle between Jesus and Satan took place in the wilderness. And that is true. That is where the battle manifested itself or broke into our world physically. But that is not where the spiritual battle takes place. See, the question is, if we are to be victorious in battle, where does the battle actually take place? And Paul gives us the answer in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, it's not against people. Our battle is not against our neighbor. It's not against our spouse. It's not against a co-worker. It's not against a child. It's not against those with whom we disagree with culturally or politically or socially. Now, people can be used by the enemy. They can be coerced by the enemy. And they can even do the enemy's work. But people are never our enemy. Never. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be engaged in the right fight, in the right place. And lots of folks are battling today over just about everything. Waving their banners, touting their cause, expressing their views on social media. Politicians and activists of all stripes call us to the battle. They call us to fight, to fight for one cause or another. And many use inflammatory language against those who disagree with them. They insult their supposed enemy. They call them names, accuse them of all manners of evil. All that's not our battle. So here's a second principle that I want you to take a hold of. Whatever has gone on is going on or will go on in our visible physical world is rooted in the invisible spiritual realm. And if you don't know how to navigate the spiritual realm, you cannot hope to truly overcome and change things in the physical realm and you'll live a defeated life. And this highlights a problem we often run into. We usually, and probably every time, try to fix things in the physical realm. And oftentimes we'll try to use the methods and the schemes of this world even though this world is not where our problems originate. Our battles originate in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places, so the only way to fight them is with weapons that work in that realm. Turn over to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, at the third verse. Paul shows us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we cannot fix things or overcome and be victorious in our battles if we fight them with what he calls according to the flesh. Verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, Paul is simply saying here, even though we live physically, we're in a human body of flesh, even though we live in this human body, in this physical world, what? We do not war according to the flesh. In other words, we don't use human weapons. We don't fight on the same level as the people of this world, and we don't use the same weapons. We don't do battle the same way people in the world do battle. We don't use the same weapons, and never is our enemy other people. Verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful. Divinely powerful, that means they're of God. For the destruction of fortresses. 
You want to tear down fortresses, you cannot use human weapons and fight the battle on the human level. Now, this does not mean that we don't advocate for justice and fight for that, as it were, or for what is right, for what is moral. It doesn't mean that you don't march or you don't protest. It doesn't mean that you don't speak out at a city council meeting or run for public office or serve in a public capacity or, or try to have a godly influence in politics and government. It doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean that if we are to be victorious, we must fight the battle in the right place, in the right way. Because verse 5 here, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, tells us what the result is. Here's the result. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are in a battle. The battle is not other people. The battle the Christian must endure is a spiritual battle. It's not just a struggle with our own sinful tendencies even. But it's a war that is cosmic in scope. And Paul is saying, do you realize as a Christian you are engaged in a battle against powers, against the, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of the wickedness in the heavenly places? In fact, the Bible tells us that in respect to world empires, the empires of the world, God raises them up and God tears them down. God is the one who establishes and removes the kingdoms of this earth. The rise and fall of kingdoms is a spiritual battle. And then there is this truth in the Bible that we see that humans and empires and states and even whole nations can be demonized. So their political structure and their political actions are really actions that they are carrying on under the influence of the devil. We may be fighting the right battles. We need to fight the battle against abortion, against injustice, against racism, against false doctrine. We need to advocate for the oppressed and the disenfranchised. But are we fighting the battles in the right way? We fight the battle in the right way when we fight it spiritually. The spiritual battle in the heavens. When our enemy is not other human beings, but our enemy is the devil and his minions, our enemies are supernatural forces, and we fight that battle with supernatural power, with the Holy Spirit and the armor of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, I want to pick it up where we left off at verse 13 before, or where we can yeah, pick it up at verse 13. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. He says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
And after the Apostle Paul lists this spiritual armor, he brings it to a conclusion in, in verse 18. He says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Put on the full armor of God. Do that every day. Fight by the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. And he says, be on the alert because we are in a battle. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives in us, who indwells us, who empowers us, who fills us. Father, that we might have the power through your Holy Spirit to do your will and fight these battles. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Father, I thank you for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he, he taught your word with clarity and with authority. And Father, we thank you for the, the authority that your word bears, that we can speak your truth. We can speak the word of God, and your word does not go out void, but it accomplishes that which you desire for it to accomplish, Father. And Father, I thank you that you have given us the armor of God. You have given us truth and righteousness. You have given us peace. And Father, I pray that as we dress for the battle, that we will see the kingdom of God victorious, even in our world as we live in it in these days. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.